Welcome to Ancient Answers, the program where we discuss modern issues by looking back to the civilizations and people that came before us and see how they dealt with similar kind of issues back in their times. I'm Shane. And I'm Gordon. And today we're going to continue our discussion on agriculture. We talked in uh, part one of this episode uh, about the origins of agriculture, the Sumerians, the Egyptians. Uh, we talked a fair bit about the peoples of South America, Mesoamerica. And we're going to bring it around to Rome and China, I think, are the ones yeah, we we're going to talk about yeah, today. We'll focus on those two because they provided two excellent examples of revolutions that get a little bit overseen. And those are the legalistic mm-hmm. revolutions of agriculture. It's, it's weird to talk about agriculture. I mean, I know certainly within my family, immediate family history, uh, my family was fundamentally farmers, certainly coming here to North America. Uh, up until the 1900s. Okay. And then slowly by slowly, things began to change. I mean, my grandfather was born on a farm in 1903. And, you know, I think about his upbringing and, you know, that he did end up becoming a tradesman. So he, in a sense, transitioned out of farming yeah. uh, to tradesmen during that 1920s period of time when things changed, 1930s. Um, we recognized that up until really the 18, let's say 1900, yeah. it still was 75% of North Americans were engaged in agricultural activities. Yeah, that's fair. It may not be only just growing food, like farmers. It could have been shipping. It could have been a variety of other food-related aspects. Mm-hmm. Now, today, the number, well, it doesn't surprise anybody. It's a roughly 2.5% are growing food. Yeah. And about another 2.5% are involved with some aspect of of agricultural distribution. Yeah, you're still looking at, you know, at most about 5% of the population oh, though, compared to 75% 100 years ago or so. That's right. And I'm not counting the sort of hobby farmers. Oh, okay. And, and I mean, that's another 2%, believe it or not. Okay. But let's not count them because they don't tend to add that much into the actual agricultural production, yeah. although they do occupy land. Yeah. And, okay. and, and surprisingly still occupy a bit. Um, we've seen... The decline of the number of farmers in North America, uh, of course, dropped to this level. Uh, it's also seen the equivalent that the amount of land that is under cultivation, mm-hmm. roughly 40% now, okay. is owned by corporations. Well, it's, yeah. Well, nowadays, there's, a, there's a, a lot more emphasis on industrialized farming Absolutely. than there is on actual uh, small-scale in individual farms, for lack of a better term. Indeed, indeed. Where we get farms, they grow nothing but one crop. Yeah. And, of course, with genetic modification technology and stuff now, we realize it is a whole different world. Yeah. Uh, when you are going back to, let's say, ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt, when it comes to wheat, mm-hmm. there were between 60 and 80 strains of wheat. Wow. Yeah, let's think about that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have get because it, it's wheat, right? Because you just in the think fossil, that it's... in the archaeological record, when they get the little seeds, yeah. the seeds, and they start to categorize them, archaeologists, you know, botanists, they realize, oh, they had all sorts of different kinds of wheat. Yeah, they had all sorts of different. I mean, this is an interesting thing. If you go to, I'm just going to jump to Mesoamerica, corn. Yeah, there's eighty types of corn. Yeah. So we forget that the diversity of crops back in the ancient day was far more than really today. Yeah. Uh, we, I mean, there's basically four types of wheat. Yeah. That's all we grow. Uh, corn, I'm not sure what, I mean, it can't be more than two or three, I would think, uh, at this point. I mean, there's a little bit of subspecies, and they do some little GMO stuff like that. Um, however, 
the two societies in the ancient days that interestingly solved these problems with a kind of a unification or stratification or what I'm not sure I'm using the right word uh, uh, would be Rome and China. It is remarkable how these two societies that kind of coexist at the same time but never really knew each other. Yeah, they the same but different. They didn't have any direct contact, at, yeah. least, at least not we know of. Um, solved the problem differently. In Rome, the growing of crops was a financial concern more than anything else because Rome's endless wars, really from the beginning of the Republic around the year 509 BC, uh, for the next 400 years were consistently draining manpower from agricultural demand. Mm -hmm. Now, they never drained it to the point where they couldn't grow food, but one of the biggest problems that they had that didn't seem to have exist in previous cultures is that you would recruit a young man who was destined to inherit a piece of land to grow food, mm -hmm. and he was recruited into the legions. Yep. He would go fight two, three, four, five, six years, and then come back, and they had to kind of pick up where he left off as kind of a farmer-soldier yep. kind of aspect, doing his duty for the Republic. The challenge was that as the wealth of Rome came in, particularly after the defeat of Carthage around the year uh, 202-200 BC, was the fact that the wealthy class of Rome had the money to buy out from under these sol absent soldiers their properties. Hmm. Just come in and kind of buy it. Yeah. Or if it, they didn't pay their taxes because they're off fighting in the army, yeah, imagine they, that. You're they were fighting just the army, but you don't pay your taxes, therefore you get nailed yeah. for tax evasion, and therefore your land would be taken usually bought out by some wealthy patrician who could Jeez. buy it out, which is one of the reasons why there was a growing um, distrust of the patrician amongst the plebeians. Yeah. And this is important because this is where the establishment of uh, you know, a variety of different governmental uh, tribune, for example, was formed to give the plebs a little bit more say upon these issues, mm -hmm. a lot of which had to deal with agriculture. Now, We've often skipped from sort of the defeat of Carthage to, you know, Pompey and Julius Caesar, you know, in the years, let's say, 60 BC to 44 BC. And we kind of gloss over the area in between. But it's important that there are two major events that occurred that have direct impact with agriculture. One was the destruction in 146 of Carthage. Mm -hmm. Carthage was a major maritime society whose fleet transported stuff all over the Mediterranean, including yeah. food product. Yeah. And they had developed farms in what is now Spain mm -hmm. that were starting to come on stream, if we would call it, to feed the growing populations around the Mediterranean basin. Yeah. And they had also had a decent relationship with Egypt. And of course, it has always been a very fertile area. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, able to produce surpluses of, of, of grains and crops. Well, Egypt was referred to as the breadbasket of Rome. So. Exactly. When it was eventually conquered by Rome. That's yeah. exactly right. But at this point, this is just before the conquest. And uh, so Rome had to deal with, in a sense, a legal revision of the law to protect the farmers. Mm -hmm. And this is when the two Gracchi brothers, uh, who were patricians themselves, kind of rose up and began to sort of advocate on behalf of the uh, average everyday farmer that they should not 
have their land subjugated to the whim of wealthy who come in and buy it off them yeah. while they were absent doing civil duty in the military. Yeah. Now, their reward for these two champions of the people was they were both murdered. <laughs> so the, the two Gretchen brothers. And in some ways, uh, this was the beginning cracks of the Republic that would culminate with, obviously, the very in-your-face uh, you know, uh, conflicts of Pompey and Julius Caesar roughly uh, 80 years later. Uh, but it set in motion the storm before the storm. Okay. Because it began to become apparent that the land reforms that were being begged by the common people were being ignored by the Roman patrician class because they were very, very resistant to make changes. They were yeah. just, you know, we have the Roman ways that are just as good as my grand, for my grandfather and my great-grandfather. They'll be just as good for me. Attitude appeared. And it's interesting that it opened up a group of strong men who recognized that the soldiers that they were commanding mm -hmm. were also the you know the family relations to small farmers who were getting a short stick deal Jeez. and therefore it was easy to speak to the soldiers that we are going to fight on behalf of your family so they get land reform yeah now land reform has been a cry since the sumerian times i'm sure but it's all through human history but it is often overlooked that these you know great Roman commanders that would eventually create a civil war mm -hmm. to fight it out, that would break up the republic, and and create the empire, um, fought within the soldiers. Their propaganda was: we're fighting to also ensure that if you're going to be professional soldiers, yeah, uh, um, uh, innovation that was created around the year 100 BC then we are going to protect your families from predatorial rich people yeah. who are going to come in and take your land when you're absent in duty for the Roman Republic. And so it's like a domino effect that occurred. Yeah. And these land reform demands uh, really set in motion, significantly set in motion, the historical events that would lead to the confrontation of Julius Caesar and Pompey. Now... There's a lot of pretty terrible things said about modern times in terms of politics and economics and what have you. And I would agree that a lot of them are justifiable. But at least it makes me glad that as a, as a developed society, we've moved past the point of stealing someone's property out from under them while they are away at war fighting for the nation or the republic or what have you. That, because when, when you first told me about that, that's a period of history I'm rather unfamiliar with because... As you mentioned, my education in terms of Roman uh, tend, tended to jump from the fall of Carthage to the time of Julius Caesar and Pompey. So that 80-year 80, 80 gap in the middle was skirted over. So this was all relatively new information yeah. to me. But it was, it was, it's, it's abhorrent to me that they would, that things were so bad and there were that there are people who are so corrupt and predatory that they would take advantage like that. Well, it, it, it literally got down to rule, laws being proposed in the Senate mm -hmm. and in the, uh, you know, in the Roman government to protect farmers, or at least better protect farmers, yeah. particularly those that were doing good service for the Republic. Yeah, to protect them. The fact that there was opposition to it 
And then you end up with other champions like uh, Marcius and Sulla and other characters that come in between these periods that themselves are quite colorful, yeah. quite dramatic. Of course, during this time, actually, just for historical perspective, mm -hmm. from the year 150 BC mm -hmm. to the year 27 BC, which is what, 177 years, yeah. Rome was at peace for four years. They were at war every other year. I can't even say I'm surprised by that. Well, it's because this they had this sense of manifest destiny. Yeah. We've heard that phrase before. Yes. Uh, they did. If you want to translate in our words today, they felt that the gods shined on them and that it was their destiny to, to bring their civilization to all the known world. It's interesting to comment about farming, getting back to agriculture, is their encounters with the Germanic tribes... In nor primarily in Northern Europe, mm -hmm. stupefied the Romans because, first of all, they were, A, surprised that the farming was actually an, you know, act an active pursuit amongst these people. They weren't just roaming around all the time hunting and gathering. Yeah. They actually had what we would actually realize is rather elaborate farming technologies, but they didn't, and they had very strict land rights stricter than the romans did oh that's interesting. at least at the early part the romans did change the law later on to protect the the landowners because they needed the political support yeah and also if they wanted their allies to continue being loyal to them beyond just the confines of the city of rome yeah they had to make sure that their land wasn't just going to be snapped up by by somebody and and, and create you know uh, in insecurity. Well, it doesn't exactly in, engender loyalties amongst your army when they know that there's a possibility that while they're away fighting your wars, that they might come home and have their land seized from them That's and their right. families tossed out. So. so eventually the Romans built up a series of law where the land uh, developed. But in the end, land tended to, over the next, certainly up to the year 300 and, and Constantine's reforms, AD, 300 AD or so, uh, the land continued to become in, in larger and larger uh, units yeah. and, and less and less use. And eventually, the majority of farmers were actually itinerant server, yeah. servants working okay. on large, large estates. Huh. It, it seemed to be a trend that was, not a re was never reversed. It just was legalistically better managed. Yeah. Now, you go to China. Yeah, I was going to say, so China. What, what do we have about China now? And this is happening roughly around the same time? Yeah, said? roughly around the time when, when uh, Shi Huangdi, the first emperor, so he reigned from two, 232 to about 220, and then on to uh, for another uh, 15 years. Now, his reforms were dramatic. He, he was an absolute ball of energy. Even though he was a bit of a tyrant, he, he certainly executed an awful lot of people, too. <laughs> Uh, but he demanded a reforming of the weights and measures. Okay. That was an innovation. He re reformed the, the width of roads, the, even the, the width of axles of, of uh, like, carts. Like for wagons? For yeah. wagons. Okay. Because they had to fit the roads and stuff like that. Yeah, that makes... Uh, one, one kind of follows the other at that point, I guess. He reformed the money. Okay. Yep. Uh, in fact, one of the most multitudinous things you find in archaeological sites in China are coins. Yeah. Just amazing amount of coins. And what's interesting was, yes, there are silver and gold coins. Yeah. But the vast majority of coins were bronze. Okay. Because China had access to more tin and copper oh. than the Mesopotamians and Europeans did. Oh. 
It's a little bronze was a little harder to get. Yeah. Even though we call it a bronze age. Yeah, I was going to say time, that surprises me. Yeah. China had more access to bronze. They, huh. That's why there's more bronze. Uh, in, you know, uh, you know, artifacts being found. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that he unified the coinage system, the monetary system, was mm-hmm. a brilliant innovation. Okay. Really, the first place that would happen. Rome would, would do it shortly after chronologically. Yeah. But. Uh, it, 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 the, the, the Chinese get the credit for having figured that out, the idea first. Huh. Now, moving forward is that the agriculture was divided into much more smaller units. Roughly one and a half acres mm-hmm. was a unit that would become a standard unit uh, per family, per farm. And the way inheritances were, were worked out was all done through law all done through edicts and dictates. So it was substantially more organized. Yeah, I would imagine a, a lot less room for corruption in, That's a, right. in an organized system like that, too. That's right. Yeah. And if you served military duty, yeah. your land was absolutely guaranteed to stay in your family. And in fact, there are families in China today, mm-hmm. notwithstanding a little bit of the Cultural Revolution 50, 60 years ago, yeah. that can lay claim to a piece of land with direct ancestry that goes back to that period of time. Jeez. In fact, I... <laughs> that longevity is insane. One of my my mom's friends is of a, a Chinese background and has a scroll. Now it's been made it made today, in yeah. the recent day. A scroll of her genealogy, and it goes back, I believe, 160 generations, uninterrupted, <laughs> to a landowner that owned a piece of land that had been given to him by Emperor Shi Huangdi. So 220, <laughs> give or take a bit, BC. Now, that's, a, you, that's amazing. You, you got you to gotta just admire the Chinese. It's amazing. Oh, the organization is just yeah. phenomenal there. And they recognized it. Uh, when when uh, Augustus Caesar did his census in roughly the year 4 BC, he found that he had about 55 million subjects in the Roman Empire. Okay, yeah. Not small. Yeah, that's that's not that substantial, yeah. Uh, in 9 AD, mm-hmm. one of the Tang emperors uh, did a, a, a census of the lands that were under his control, and he came up with a number of 58 million c- citizens or civilians yeah. or, or people, yeah. subjects would be probably the word at that yeah. time. And I'm thinking, wow. So there is an interesting comparison between Rome and China yeah. at the time, in this case it was the Tang Dynasty, in terms of their organization. Now, the Tangs certainly fought a lot of wars, but nowhere near the number of wars the Romans fought. Yeah, of course. Uh, and the stability went for roughly 400 years, mm-hmm. so that an average farmer and their family and descendants would have had a remarkable amount of stability for that time. Now, the only thing they did suffer was occasionally the... Uh, the Yellow River, the mm-hmm. northern major of the two major rivers, did seem to fluctuate sometimes from uh, f- going dry some years and the, and then flooding yeah, some years. Yeah, I, I remember reading about that, that it was prone to flooding unexpectedly as well. That's right. Yeah, there was not a lot of pattern to it. But if anybody looks at Chinese topography, realizes they got a lot of mountains as well. Yeah. Now, the, the, the western half of China is still to this day sparsely inhabited uh, most of the population is in the eastern half by far but as you get inland a little bit you get into some mountains and what was interesting cultures 
that developed terraced farming, where you 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 carve into the mountain levels. Yeah. Uh, and then they have their own pocket of soil and and water, and you grow crops there. Mm-hmm. This is enormously labor intensive, and in fact, you're reshaping the side of the mountain. You're reshaping the side of the mountain. Yeah. And we know that from the archaeological record, the extent of these terraced farming are are enormous, mm-hmm. and it has been estimated that the number of man hours that would be needed to make these terraced gardens at least by the time they get to about the year 600 AD yeah may have taken more man hours than any other thing on the planet with possible exception of the great wall and the great canal also found in china that china has what may it be the top 3 most human-intensive projects in human history. Jeez. <laughs> uh, I mean, pyramids notwithstanding in Egypt, yeah, or the, the pyramids of Mesoamerica. Yeah, or the, Ken- or the aqueducts of Rome and, and yeah. what have you. And, of course, that's a major aspect of Roman agriculture yeah. was, ag- uh, was aqueducts. Yep. But it is interesting to give the Chinese a great credit that they seem to know how to mono- uh, get people to work <laughs> to to co- coordinate and organize massive workforces yeah. to create these enormous projects by hand Jeez. and one of them was this this terrace guards yeah now there's not a lot in china there are in china today but they're in more in pockets mm-hmm. the one place that you can in asia at least is the philippines okay. goes yeah, to very know. extensive yeah. terraced uh, uh agriculture areas that are quite quite remarkable yeah um but there has been, uh, you know, there has been a revision of it. The interesting aspect about China is you think, okay, with so many people, even today, mm-hmm. 1.4 billion, every piece of land must be growing a crop. Now, my experience visiting China was along the seaboard, yes. Mm-hmm. But when I did take a train trip up to Xi'an, uh, I was surprised to find that there was quite extensive amounts of land we were going through that appear to have no agricultural activity at all. It's hilly and mountainous. Yeah. And and but there is valleys and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so it is it is remarkable that even to this day the Chinese are not using every piece of possible agricultural land to grow their food. Yeah. But they have to be, I think, of all the people given the credit for the most organized. <laughs> because it has not really changed in twenty three hundred years. And that's that's something, and you know, we we've mentioned a couple times now over the course of this episode and the previous one that agriculture is not the most glamorous topic to discuss in terms of ancient history, especially compared to some other things that we may have discussed before. But it's incredibly important. But it's the I foundation. Think it's yeah, it's it's the cornerstone of civilization. But I also think that it is remarkably demonstrative of human beings and the ability to adapt because we've talked now about terraced gardens on mountainsides in Asia, as well as in uh, South America. You mentioned that in the last episode, that they had terraced gardens as well. We've talked about the uh, uh, Chinampa growing system that was used in Mesoamerica. Um, We talked a little bit about roaming. We have, you know, our standard European practices of farming that carried over to North America. Uh, Ancient North America, they had uh, like three sisters growing was a tight style that they did where they mixed crops to support each other. It's just amazing that 
really, no matter where you go on the planet at any point in history, human beings have adapted to their surroundings to the point where they could feed and sustain populations of people. And they didn't really have an ability to talk to each other. No, they just they trade just, notes. Yeah, we they, do today. Yeah, we exactly. forget how easy it is. Yeah, but they they just figured it out on their own yeah. and and ran with it. And it's it's astonishing how impressive that is. Like the creativity behind that. So when you have your bowl of cereal or <laughs> your corn cobs, uh, you know, or or some bread, we need to thank the ancients for for figuring it out so we can enjoy it today. Yeah. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode uh, of uh, Ancient Answers. Why don't you tell us about our social media stuff? Yeah, so uh, thank you very much for listening. You can find us on social media. We've got a Facebook page. We're in the process of putting together a Twitter account, Instagram. Uh, we're also planning on uh, going up onto YouTube as well. So you'll be able to find us there. You can uh, listen to our podcast on Spotify. The links are on Anchor as well. You can find us on anchor.fm slash ancient answers and from there there's actually links to all of our social media pages so it's a really great way to stay connected thanks again and hope you have a great day <laughs>